from DLA Piper. This is the Beyond the Curve podcast. In this episode, Richard Burr, former U.S. Senator and current chair of DLA Piper's Health Policy Strategic Consulting Practice, talks with Julie Gerberding, former director of the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and current CEO of the Foundation for the National Institutes of Health. The wide-ranging conversation includes thoughts on the Pandemic and All Hazards Preparedness Act, lessons learned from COVID-19, and potential benefits of AI and therapeutic research and development. Welcome to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve. I'm Richard Burr, Principal Policy Advisor at DLA Piper, and my guest today is Dr. Julie Gerberding. Julie, welcome. Thank you. Happy to talk with you. Delighted to have you. And Julie, everybody knows who you are, but they don't know what you've done. I even found it amazing when I went back and looked at your background, the things that I didn't either know or had forgotten. You grew up in South Dakota. Absolutely. Small town, 800 people. Now, we're going to talk about pheasant hunting before this is over. I can assure you <laughs> of that. But you were an undergrad and grad at Case Western Reserve University. You were the chief medical resident at the University of California. And in that first year was when HIV AIDS hit. So there's no question in my mind about why you were so involved in the viral areas and so passionate about it. In 2001, you were acting director of the National Center for Infectious Disease during the anthrax attack. Here again, I'm a little concerned that you're always at the center of something being triggered. <laughs> I'm going to be curious to see what the next one is. And during that time, you really became the chief point person in every CDC daily brief. And that's where people associated your face with your expertise. You became CDC director in 2002 and served to 2009. And I'm not sure many people realize you were the first woman to ever serve as director of the Centers for Disease Control. And more importantly, you're currently the CEO of the Foundation for the National Institute of Health. What an incredible experience you've had up to this point. Not only is NIH blessed to have you there, but we're blessed to have you in the U.S. healthcare system and, more importantly, focused on global health issues and public health in specific. So let's get right into it. Are you a pheasant hunter? <laughs> well, my family certainly is. We just got the family together in November for a big hunt. Well, any family from South Dakota, I have learned has family recipes for pheasants. So I expect next time you and I get together, you're going to pass at least one or two on to me because that's a delicacy at my house. As long as you have a can of cream of mushroom soup, we'll be okay. <laughs> that's amazing. That's the starter for everybody in South Dakota. <laughs> Julie, you and I recently penned an opinion editorial about the need to reauthorize PAPA, the Pandemic All Hazards Preparedness Act. Let's talk a little bit about why the industry, why the public, and why legislators should really want this reauthorization to happen. You know, thank you for that. And thank you for your leadership in birthing Papa in the first place. I think a lot of us want to look in the rearview mirror and say, okay, we had our once in a century pandemic, let's move on. But the truth is, we're in a world where we're going to see emergence and spillover of infectious diseases, laboratory accidents, and possibly even intentional use of bio threats. We've got to be better prepared than we've been 
leading into the COVID pandemic. And PAPA is the legislation that really sets the stage and the authorities to continuously improve our overall national security and particularly our biosecurity. So it's critical. Well, just in the time since PAPA was birthed in 2006, you've experienced the threat of H1N1, H5N1, both influenza threats. We had SARS, MERS, Ebola. Now, not all of these grew to a pandemic level, and not all of them were necessarily direct threats to the United States. But you've got such a steep history in public health. Why should America be concerned about a viral infection in Africa or in Southeast Asia? What's different today that should make us concerned and really focused on it? So let's start at the big picture first. What are the conditions that make these infectious diseases so much more worrisome and threatening? The big picture is our global connectivity. We saw in the first SARS how one very ill person in a hotel in Hong Kong literally overnight spread that virus to others in the hotel and then globalized it to the United States, to Canada, to Europe, to other Asian countries overnight. That just really shows you how much travel connectivity we have. We saw the same thing with the cruise ships during this pandemic of COVID. The passengers are very international, very mixed. So in a heartbeat, we can move things from one remote area of the world to another. We have ecotourism, bringing people in closer proximity to animals that may be sources of these viruses. We have urban incursion, where cities in areas that used to be primarily surrounded by rural are now moving people closer and closer to animal reservoirs that we haven't even surveyed or identified as potential sources of spillover viruses. And then I have to bring in climate change. We see mosquitoes moving into new areas. We've had transmission of mosquito-borne diseases in the United States, like malaria. We're really in a world where where there's a kind of a perfect storm of things that are increasing our connectivity to each other, our connectivity to pathogens, and the ecology of these viruses is truly changing. So that's kind of the global framework. And then on the other hand, we're dealing with, I think, some lessons learned that we best pay attention to. For example, we had SARS-1 in 2003. That had a 10% mortality rate. Wasn't very transmissible to healthy people, but 10% of the 8,000 people who acquired it died. We saw the influenza in 2009 that you mentioned, that had a very low mortality rate, but it did spread very rapidly among young people. We saw the avian influenza with almost a 50% mortality rate. Mother Nature is playing with us. Imagine if we had this coronavirus outbreak, and instead of having a less than 1% mortality rate, it had a 10% mortality rate, the way we saw with SARS-1. It's our devastating potential to truly change human history. And we've got to be much better prepared than we are. Julie, it's said about viral infections like this that viruses by their own nature become less virulent over time because they need their host to stay alive. Is that an accurate statement? And if so, what should we say to the folks that today are looking at COVID or the COVID, as old people like me call it, 
And the fact that they look at this year and they say, well, not as many people are dying now. Where is the point that we have to emphasize and educate folks about the elimination of this threat? Because we've got to get prepared for the next one. First of all, humility is a really important component and should be written into the PAPA legislation <laughs> because I think we have to acknowledge that we don't have all the answers and we can't totally predict how this will evolve. But we are seeing two things. One is the current strains of coronavirus that are circulating do appear to be less dangerous than the Delta variant that we experienced earlier in the pandemic. So that's a good thing. And that is consistent with your idea that viruses evolved to be less virulent. But we're also dealing with a population that is gradually accumulating more and more immunity to the family of coronaviruses. And that's certainly a help too. Doesn't mean we should not continue to pursue the best vaccine available to make sure we maintain high levels of immunity. But I think most of us believe that we're tipping into a situation that is going to look a lot more like influenza. Coronavirus may become a seasonal virus that does cause illness, hospitalization, and death in a subset of people, but will become much less worrisome than it was when it first appeared, and we had no population immunity at all. Now, Julie, 20 years ago when we were first constructing PAPA, we had threats that we could identify. Included in that list, I don't think, were Zika and dengue <laughs> and some of the things that you've rightly pointed out is the result of a climate shift. And though it might have existed in Central and South America, it wasn't in the United States domestically. My question is this. we got to go to the 800-pound gorilla word in the global dictionary now, AI. How does the future change in public health if we really leverage AI? And what does that potentially provide to us? from a standpoint of finding cures to threats that just popped up that we don't have 10 years or 20 years to prepare for? Just a very big opportunity in my view. One dimension of it is prediction of where these types of particularly spillovers may occur, where humans and animals are connecting, but also where we can amalgamate information that we do have about infections in animals, so-called zoonotic infections, or where mosquito populations are changing, etc. That kind of data exists, could be augmented with more investment and scientific support, but that information can tell us where the hot spots are. Where do we really need to concentrate our efforts to predict and then detect early something that's emerging before it has a chance to move so fast? But fast forward all the way to the other end, how do we develop therapeutics that would be maximally effective at decreasing the impact of a new threat? And that's, I think, where the AI of research and development really comes into play. You and I have talked and wearing our hats as co-chairs of the CSIS Commission, or the Alliance for Global Health Security, we've talked about, while yes, it's important that we have vaccine development capability in the fastest possible time frame, we can't forget that we need to be able to treat people with small molecules, with antivirals, and we're not going to necessarily know what the next virus is. 
the universe of possibility is huge. So having a much better prediction of the kinds of small molecules that might be maximally effective against families of viruses, another place for AI and in silico drug screening, target identification and drug development could be extremely helpful so that we would not only have the capacity to have an antiviral that could have broad spectrum, say against all coronaviruses or the most important coronaviruses, but at the same time have a stockpile and a manufacturing capacity. As you know, it's much easier to manufacture small molecules in general than it is to develop antibodies or vaccines. So we need to make sure we invest in antiviral anticipatory drug development. And I think that's an area that is ripe for broader AI application. I don't want to get into a debate in this podcast about the IRA, but the IRA targeted a reduction in drug pricing, but it targeted small molecules by treating it different. And it seems that there's a concern in the marketplace that that's going to mean that there's going to be less private investment into small molecules at a time that I think you and I both agree we need more investment and more research into small molecules. Let me ask you this question, though. Going forward, who's responsible to initiate the type of discovery that addresses that line of viral threat? Is it government? Is it academia? Is it the private sector? Who do you think has to be the starting gun on this? Well, the short answer is all of the above. It really takes the ecosystem of our R&D enterprise from academic discovery, industry, R&D, and government to set the priorities and make the investments. But I do think that you wouldn't ask that question about our defense R&D. We know who's ultimately driving the investments in our national security defense mechanisms. And I believe that what we're trying to accomplish here with biosecurity is in the same level of urgency and priority as other elements of our national defense. So I do believe that the government is going to have to make substantial commitments to support these efforts. But private-public partnerships are a great way to leverage the government's investment. I think I think we've seen examples where that's been good for taxpayers, but also really helps to drive innovation. Absolutely. If the United States, if the world health organizations embrace artificial intelligence, how do you think that that impacts healthcare going forward? I think we're just beginning to imagine what it could really do for us. We're sort of at the 0.5 version, I would say, right now, and we can only lean into the 1.0 and beyond opportunities for applying AI. But clearly, from a industry perspective, one of the most important opportunities is to really identify who needs intervention, who's at risk, who are the patients, and where are the patients that should be given the opportunity to participate in clinical research. And we know we don't do a good enough job of being inclusive in that effort. But if we had the ability to, for example, query large databases, large patient health records, for example, and offer the opportunities for patients to be part of the process of understanding and exploring new medicines, or understand once medicines are approved, which patients are the most likely to benefit from them and which patients don't benefit from them and should be offered something else. There's just a whole opportunity 
for evolving much more precision medicine by applying algorithms that can be derived from the information that already exists, not to mention the opportunity for omics and a whole new set of information that I think will increasingly drive precision medicine. Do you envision some timeline where AI replaces in the clinical trial process actual humans. (laughs) It's always bugged me for the 28 years that I was a legislator that many of the trials that were out there were for life-saving drugs, yet 50% of the makeup of the trial was getting a placebo, meaning they didn't have a chance to benefit from it. Will AI give us a confident option to the current design of clinical trials? That's complicated. One very specific opportunity, I think, is the in silico identification of targets and the in silico screening of potential small molecules or large molecules that will target those targets. So I think that's one dimension that removes a whole lot of uncertainty about what you're going to take to first in human clinical trials and beyond. So that's one area where we can speed up the identification of new medicines. But when it comes to actually understanding at the end of the day, how does this medicine affect human beings? I don't think we're going to have a substitute for inclusion of humans in clinical studies. And at the end of the day, ultimately, it's the patient outcome and the patient's perspective of how the medicine has or has not helped them that really matters most. So, no, I think we're always going to need clinical trials, but I think we are already learning that we can conduct those trials differently. A very specific example that I'm interested in is normally when we have a new drug for cancer, we use it first in the patients who have the worst cancer and have failed all other opportunities. That's a pretty stringent test of efficacy. But now we're able to study some of the new and most promising medicines much earlier, sometimes neoadjuvant, meaning right at the beginning, to try to get the treatment started with the strong medicine that has the best chance of curing or creating a prolonged remission. So we are adjusting how we think about conducting clinical trials. They're much more patient-oriented. As you know, PAPA was the architecture that we developed an mRNA vaccine in 12 months with success from two administrations designing around that and working with partners. I've spent a lifetime in Congress trying to create these accelerated pathways so that we could reduce the time from discovery to approval. And I guess COVID is the best example of it, yet a large segment of the population responded to the speed with which we created a vaccine and said, that's not safe. Hmm. What do we say to them? Because I think we're going to have more examples of this in the future, not less. A couple of things to say, and I had experience when I was president of vaccines at Merck, and then later Merck was involved in creating the Ebola virus vaccine. But just as is true with the COVID vaccine development, Ebola vaccine development didn't start when the outbreak occurred in West Africa. It started years before, actually, by the Canadian Department of Defense in collaboration with the NIH and small biotech company in Iowa and on and on and on. The ecosystem was working on that vaccine long before the terrible outbreak occurred. The same is true of the COVID mRNA vaccines. There was a great deal of work going on with 
COVID vaccines because of SARS in 2003. So we didn't just start learning about safety when we had the actual pandemic. We had accumulated a great deal of information from the preclinical studies of the mRNA vaccine process from animal models, et cetera. So we hit the ground running, and that's how we were able to develop those vaccines so fast. But I think also people don't realize how much more information we have about the safety of the mRNA coronavirus vaccines than we do with many other medicines that they do have confidence in. This vaccine and the outcome of the people enrolled in the research and the post-approval monitoring is as gold standard as anything we've ever done. So I think obviously we still have a lot to learn, but we should feel like the process by which we assess drug safety was in a sense at its best for these vaccines. I agree with you totally. And talk just a second, if you will, about the incredible opportunity that technology platforms provide us going forward. I look at mRNA, and this was a platform, a technology platform. My hope is that in the coming years, we're going to have new treatments, maybe cancer treatments that are off of the same mRNA design. Is that an area that we should really be promoting at the academic and research level more so than specific drugs or therapies? Should we be promoting a robust look at how many new platforms we can create? Oh, I absolutely think so. But it's not something new. If you think about our more traditional vaccines, in a sense, they've been built off of platforms as well. There are a number of VLP vaccines when the actual vaccine is a construct of virus-like particles that make the shell of the virus without its genetic material. So it's a concept that we've exploited for much earlier medicines. But now I think the combination of our burgeoning scientific toolbox, as well as our information sciences, makes platforms just a no-brainer. I just came from the J.P. Morgan meeting, as you did, and we were probably both bombarded with the cutting edge of platform utilization in infectious diseases, in cancer, in gene therapy. We're really starting to see how important that is in establishing a framework and move the applications in and out of. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean that, for example, the mRNA platform is going to work for every pathogen, as there are some viruses where that's probably not going to be a solution, nor do we know what the durability of protection will be with that particular platform. But as a concept, absolutely, I think it really will help us. Julie, you and I have worked pretty closely on some global health issues of late, but you've got a history of looking at the global health landscape. How do you define successful collaboration? And when I ask that question, I'm thinking of three buckets, academia, industry, and government. In my role of serving in the foundation for the NIH, that's our secret sauce, is building these partnerships between the NIH, the life science companies, foundations, and patient organizations. So I've had a chance to really see the power in that kind of wise crowd. And that applies for working on a challenge in the U.S. developed world environment. But it's even more important when we think about global health challenges. No entity is going to solve 
malaria or malaria drug resistance. And it's going to take governments of the affected areas. It's going to take innovators in academia and life sciences. And it's going to take people not just coming in from the outside to swoop in and solve the problem. It's going to take capacities, partnerships, and on-the-ground organizations to really come together. Now, you've done this. You know that pulling together an alliance is tricky. It has a high transactional cost. But once you get everybody aligned and you're clear on what you're trying to do, you can really move the needle on the dial. And I think we saw that in the urgency of COVID. The FNIH was very involved in ACTIVE, which was the private-public partnership that worked through the development of 33 different options for treating COVID. And in a very short period of time, master protocols and clinical trials were set up. I think more than 700 sites, some 33,000 patients. It was amazing what can happen when you bring those partners together and really focus on getting the job done. Let's talk about your current role as CEO of the foundation at NIH. What is the mission of the foundation and what is the goals of the foundation? So Congress actually authorized the foundation for the NIH more than 25 years ago. Our mission is to support the mission of the NIH. And the mission of the NIH is obviously to advance science that improves human health and health equity. So it's a very broad mission. But I think a lot of people don't realize it's actually tricky for the government to work with the private sector. There are all kinds of barriers that make that scientific exchange complicated, and certainly any financial mixing is problematic. So what the foundation really does is bring partners together around pre-competitive science that nobody is going to tackle alone, like finding biomarkers of Alzheimer's disease or figuring out how to really understand the opportunities for gene therapy of mosquitoes to prevent malaria, and then build the scientific study designs that can help get answers to those questions. In a sense, it's like raising the tide so all boats float. We create kind of the collaborative data and understanding. We identify biomarkers, One of our best examples recently is the launch of eight clinical trials of gene therapies for rare diseases. Now, FNIH and 10 NIH institutes and I think a total of 33 partners are not going to solve the problem of genetically determined rare diseases. But by coming together and working in collaboration with experts who are familiar with regulatory science, we can define, okay, what is the best set of guidance for good manufacturing practices of vectors? That helps everybody. What is the guidance around how to get approval for a treatment for a rare disease when you can't do a randomized clinical trial? That helps everybody. So by working collaboratively and working through some of these wicked problems, we can actually create a framework that moves the whole process forward. It helps to accelerate and catalyze the availability of new medicines. Well, as you know, the high cost of drugs, biologics, devices today is a focus in Washington. And you talk about the work of the foundation and the investments that NIH makes and the private sector investments that come in to create a product that 
could be applied at the FDA for approval. And I'm thinking about the phase that we're in where we're beginning to see a tremendous amount of cell and gene therapy treatments. One of them currently recently approved for sickle cell, a very targeted population. And all of a sudden, we've got about a $2 million price tag for a one-time treatment and a cure to a disease that could be administered in a pediatric state. They're going to live a long life without the complications of sickle cell. Julie, what's the answer to the question of who's going to pay for it? It's a really hard question, and I'm not totally an expert on the economics of this, but I have read the analysis of the cost-effectiveness of sickle cell gene therapy, at least in a developed country, where the cost of caring for the patients, their multiple hospitalizations, their transfusions, all of the complications of sickle cell really create an enormous economic burden for the patient and his or her family, but also to sustain society. And my understanding of the bottom line is that this one-time treatment that you're talking about, even at that gigantic price tag, actually, ultimately, will save money. But that's not a very easy argument to swallow when the upfront costs come all at once and the downstream costs pay out over a number of years. So we have a challenge here. How do we think differently about realizing the economic benefits of investing in cures for chronic diseases and at the same time the tremendous impossibility of having that kind of price tag for more and more medicines. And then when you look, what does that mean for places in the world where sickle cell disease is actually extremely common and many children do not live past age five because they have sickle cell disease? We have to be thinking globally about how do we translate these modern therapies to the people who really need them the most, the communities that really need them the most. Actually, one of the really exciting things that we're in the early stages of at FNIH is working with the NIH, the National Institute of Heart, Lung, Blood, as well as the Gates Foundation to see, is there a way to benefit from this kind of gene therapy without the complexity of having to remove cells from the body and manipulate them in the laboratory? Is there actually a way to do this inside the human body so that it someday might be possible to bring something like that to a much broader population of people, even in resource-limited areas. That's a long runway to get there. But if we don't start thinking about things like that now, it will never happen. And that takes a huge investment, as you and I both know, that somebody commits to. So the back end has to have some promise to it. And I think the one thing that I would add, you alluded to it, we need to start the debate of how we're going to pay for this, because we can create a suite of options. Some of them may be manufacturers paid back over a series of years, so it coincides with the savings that we're getting out of the healthcare system. But I think probably the most overarching term would be we've got to move to value-based healthcare. And I know you were one of the premier folks in HIV AIDS, and you knew my good friend Tom Coburn, who was a doctor and a member of Congress. And I remember when Tom and I, on the heels of President Bush 43's PEPFAR initiative, we went to the Congress and tried to get HIV AIDS cocktail drugs as a free service for everybody who tested positive. 
and we wanted it covered under Medicare and Medicaid. And our colleagues on both sides of the aisle rejected it, even though our argument was exactly the point you made. Here's the annual cost, because we know every HIV AIDS patient is going to have two hospitalizations, one for a retinal infection, one for pneumonia. Here's the price tag that we're going to pay on an annual basis. And if we pay one-fourth of that, we can keep them from having those two hospitalizations. And the dollars and cents at the time couldn't convert to a legislative initiative. So I know up close and personal how hard it is, but we can't quit. We have to really look at how we make these kinds of short-term investment, long-term payback evaluations. And as you know, the CBO calculus (laughs) doesn't make that easy. I struggled with it over a number of diseases when I was at CDC, as we know that investing in prevention is a very cost-effective intervention. But to pay for the upfront costs when you don't realize the benefit for five or 10 years is tricky. And the payers see it the same way because people move from plan to plan. They don't want to invest in protecting the patients they have in this cohort who might benefit some other payer when they move and change plans or get a different job. So our system isn't really rational. And we have to think about what can we do as a government from a policy perspective, I think, to really allow that kind of more rational decision. And value-based care is one framework that to me just makes total sense. But moving from the system we have to that system is proving to be a slower process than I imagined it would be. Yeah, we would both agree on that. I know your passion for public health globally. How do you see technology benefiting the global surveillance capabilities going forward? Because you mentioned how mobile we are as a population now, and we can actually take a visit somewhere and return home before in that original destination they determine they have a virus, and all of a sudden it's out of the box. Yeah. So let's just take a common challenge, not a particularly overwhelming one, but let's talk about the kind of traveler's diarrhea that people get. So you travel to, let's say you go to India and you come home and you have a gastrointestinal illness. You go to the doctor. Maybe they'll do a laboratory test to find out what's causing it. And you find out you have something and you say, yeah, I was in India. Well, that's not very precise. Supposing that we actually could mine information about people who developed traveler's diarrhea in a certain time frame who report being in a certain geographic area, and we had their cell phone data about exactly where they were, you could imagine we could pin it down to, oh, it was that cart on the street in New Delhi that these people all went to the same place and acquired the same infection. That's just a thought experiment at this point in time. But this ability to use geospatial information that is already available electronically. We just have to find ways to harvest it and not run amok of people's privacy. We saw some opting in of that in contact tracing during COVID. The Koreans used a version of that when they were dealing with MERS, the coronavirus outbreak that was very upsetting in that 
environment. And even in West Africa, during the Ebola outbreak, there was an attempt to use cell data to identify the context of patients with Ebola to figure out where the next round of spread was going to occur. So we have even existing information. We just haven't really applied ourselves to figuring out the approach to utilizing it in the best possible way. You and I have talked about technologies that I've seen that can actually predict COVID outbreaks based upon the video analysis of people from a CCV camera, because technologically with the light off of their forehead, you can read an oxygenation level, a respiratory rate, heart rate, the things that predict as you assemble, as you gain enough information on a virus, you know the things that are going to be common with each individual that presents themselves. And it's amazing to me that we're so slow at trying to put together a layered system. We're Mm -hmm. still looking for that one silver bullet that tells us everything. And common sense is telling us, let's get some layers out there so that we've got multiple flags that are going up that would say, take this seriously. Does that make sense? It makes absolute sense. When I was at CDC, I had a big idea that who knows more about the health of their grandchildren than grandparents? They know everything about their grandkids. And if we could somehow have sentinel grandparents who would report on their young grandchildren who had flu-like illness, we would probably get an early indicator of when influenza was making its appearance in a community and really use that as an incentive to really emphasize vaccine campaigns, etc. That's another layer. It's a cheap layer through social media, etc. But we haven't really pulled those things together. We're still arguing about how to get electronic health records moved electronically (laughs) into a standardized and organized format. So in the United States, sometimes it's harder to do these things because we're bogged down in our traditional processes. But in other countries that are much less resource rich than we are, they innovate in this way. They use these layered approaches to asking and answering questions in a disruptive way. So we could learn some things by watching the solutions that are popping out of countries that have much less to work with than we do. With what you know in your history and experiences, if you could be king for a day, what would you change inside of government to make this system of healthcare? And I'm not talking about cost, and I'm really not talking about access, but I'm talking about innovation. What change would you make to allow that innovation to really become unleashed? It's tough. You can't change the Constitution. And there are barriers to requiring the sharing and exchange of health information. That's in the state's domain. And that's one of the challenges people had during the pandemic is how do you reach agreement to what should be shared and why and what's in the national interest versus what's states' rights and individual privacy rights, etc. So I do think that there are some opportunities to modernize our approach to health information security, but also health information utilization for the good of the public health. And that's controversial, and I understand that, but that would be one really big lever that I would try to enact. I think the other is to really think about how do you incentivize that kind of innovation? Who benefits? And we need to not think of it as any one entity, but 
I love the idea of hackathons and things that create prizes or really jumpstart all the creative minds and energy that we do have, particularly in our early career people who are much more adept at using new tools than I probably am. How do we unleash them? And we need to create incentives for people to really be entrepreneurial. Our kids need to be incentivized to be thinking about these kinds of issues and solutions. Well, you saw it up close and personal when we needed a different way to test for COVID. And Francis Collins at NIH took on the initiative, and I'm sure there were many disparate parts of NIH that worked on it. There were like 400-plus entries of companies that walked in the door and said, here's our test. Most of them weren't healthcare companies. They were technology companies, and they were leveraging their technology or their know-how to do something different. And I think that's what displayed to us just how great the intellectual capacity is of not only the United States, but the world. Because when asked, they address, maybe we don't ask enough. You might be right about that. We need to put the challenges out there and interest and excite people. So as I think the longest serving member of the House and Senate Intelligence Committee, I was always asked this question near the end of an interview. If you had to pick one thing that really worries you going forward, what is that one thing for you? I started my professional career with the AIDS pandemic. We've gone through several serious outbreaks since then, most recently the COVID pandemic. I have to put global infectious disease threats at the top of my list, and particularly global respiratory infectious diseases. I would agree with you, by the way. And I think many in the intelligence community would also agree with you. And many people in the healthcare community would also agree with you. Julie, I realize that this podcast is not going to be heard by everybody in the world. But <laughs> if you had one thing to say today to the millions of innovators around the world, both individual and corporate, about what you see the next decade and why they should be excited, what would it be? The tools of science right now are magnificent. I was even more convinced of that as I sat through several discussions at J.P. Morgan. The capabilities that we have to understand basic human biology and exploit that understanding to not just move the needle on the dial of medicines and treatments, but actually cure diseases for people has never been greater. But our society is lagging. And I would really encourage the people who understand the value and the opportunity that all of this innovation creates to also join forces to stand strong on speaking up for the importance of science, how science works, and really helping to re-earn trust in science and why it really matters to people. Collectively, we're an incredibly influential force of information and credibility, but often we don't use it. We watch and wring our hands at the misinformation and disinformation that gets promulgated, but we forget that we have friends, family, communities, and we have an opportunity to really speak up on behalf of science and the importance of innovation and progress, and that we really can solve these problems. I know in all the roles you've played, I'm not going to challenge you to comment on this one, but I'll make the statement. <laughs> After 28 years in Washington, I've never seen a lower level of interest to learn 
on the part of the legislators than I do right now. And that really scares me because we're headed into the decade of the greatest opportunity influenced by technology and innovation and science. And those three things require somebody to be educated, to be passionate about them. How do you think we close this gap? Because let's face it, industry is not the right messenger. And sometimes industry's message, even though they intend to go to the same destination, is different than academia's message. And somewhere in between all of this is a regulator. How do we get everybody focused on, as I like to say for clients, I need to know where your gaps are because I need to know what it is we can do. But I need to know the destination you as a company are trying to get to, because if I don't know the destination, how can I help you get there? And I think this is part of the problem is we've got three or four different buckets. And though they may have the same destination, they don't know that, but they have certainly different pathways at getting there. And none of them want to share the pathways to make it easier for everybody. How do we accomplish it? If I had an answer to that, the foundation for NIH would be much bigger. (laughs) (laughs) But I know this will seem silly in the context of the big challenge that you just put out, but storytelling is important. And being able to narrate the problem and the solution and how people have come together or could come together to really tackle these things is critically important. As people aren't going to suddenly become scientifically literate overnight, but they can understand a story. They can understand the human dimension of a sickle cell patient and why this new treatment is so game-changing for that individual, but also for society. So I think part of it is illustrating the value that can be created and why it matters at a human level. And I think the other side of that, in some sense, is carefully articulating not the laundry list, but a few grand challenges, things that people really appreciate are, in a sense, existential. Like, to me, a global pandemic like COVID, but with an even higher mortality rate, is an existential threat. And we need to get the right people involved in understanding that, yes, just like a nuclear bomb, this is an existential threat to our world. And we do need to come together to bring our best wise crowd capabilities to try to solve it. Yeah, my threshold in my office for 28 years on healthcare was if you bring me a legislative proposal, show me the human face behind it. I had to see the, who was affected by it. I wanted to see the positive and if there was a negative, the negative face. I promise this is the last question, and it's a little bit redundant, but what would be your message right now to the population of the world, specifically as it relates to viral threats going forward? I think you and I believe the same thing that we're experiencing right now, something we're going to experience probably on a more frequent basis in the future, that it's probably impossible for us to pick out of a dark closet a white shirt every time and say, here's what's going to happen. But we have to know the inventory of things that are possible. We also have to tell the public, here's what you need to do. Here's what you need to focus on. What would that be? I go back and forth on this because on the one hand, you are never going to sustain the kind of heightened awareness and 
social activation for a marathon that you do when you're in a sprint. We sprinted through at least the early part of COVID, but to maintain that level of vigilance or even interest is just not realistic at a citizen level. But I do think it's realistic for leaders, particularly government leaders, but also business leaders. And I'm always interested in speaking to the people whose businesses were most profoundly impacted by COVID because those people are wanting some significant action to prepare and mitigate the future risk of this because many of them lost their business or came very close to having to shut down their business and they understand the existential threat. So it's a hard challenge because, no, you can't possibly be thinking about the next pandemic when you get up every morning. On the other hand, some people need to be thinking about that every day. And that's why we need PAPA. And that's why we need our government and our global health institutions to maintain the investment and the focus on continuing that continuum of preparedness, even when we are seemingly in a less risky period. Well, that's why we need you as CEO at the foundation. I am grateful for your willingness to do this podcast with me today. Thank you for the leadership you show at the foundation, but more importantly, for the lifetime of contribution that you've made. I thank those that are listening to this podcast of Beyond the Curve by DLA Piper, and I look forward, Julie, to our next encounter. Thank you. Thank you, Senator, and thank you for your leadership. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to DLA Piper's Beyond the Curve podcast. All information, content, and materials contained in this podcast are for general informational purposes only. This podcast is intended to be a general overview of the subjects discussed and does not create a lawyer-client relationship. Statements and opinions are those of the individual speakers and participants and do not necessarily reflect the policies or opinions of DLA Piper LLP US. The information contained in this podcast is not and should not be used as a substitute for legal advice. No listener should act or refrain from acting with respect to any particular legal matter on the basis of this podcast without first seeking legal advice from counsel in the relevant jurisdiction. This podcast may qualify as lawyer advertising, requiring notice in some jurisdictions. Prior results do not guarantee a similar outcome. DLA Piper LLP US accepts no responsibility for any actions taken or not taken as a result of this podcast. Thank you.